be together. Good to gather in God's presence. That's the best thing about our time together is that God himself is here with us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of take that for granted, at least I tend that way. And it's really wonderful that he would meet with us and he would animate our time, fill us, fill the, the words we sing, the things that we do. I trust that you have felt his presence this morning. One of the highlights of coming before God is hearing from Him. He's a God who speaks to us and His words impart life. And He's given us His book, the Bible, which is His very words. And He's given us His book that we might experience the life that comes from interacting with His Word, hearing His Word. And So it's an important part of our gathering. And it's my privilege uh, to bring you the God's Word this morning. I get to do this, I guess, most Sundays. And if you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're here. I pray that God would bless you. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here at King of Grace. Um, we have a team of pastors and pastoral candidates. They're exciting to see the people that God has brought us. And not only pastoral leaders, but deacons and other leaders in our church. We're very blessed. And, and uh, So we want to help you wherever you might be in your journey. Uh, whether you're just curious about Christianity or reconsidering or re reinvestigating your roots or looking for home church, let us know. Let us know how we can help you. We are in a series in the letter to the Ephesians and learning much from this wonderful book that's been given to us. Originally a letter written to the church in Ephesus. And in this letter, there are some grand, wonderful themes. Really, to sum up this letter, it's, it's really a picture of what it looks like when a church centers on the gospel of grace. When a church keeps the the good news of Christ and the grace of God in Christ at the center. What it does and really why. Um, why a church should walk in these things. The, the wonderful truths about Christ. And then what it looks like. So it really helps us see what we're called to be as a, as a local church and as individuals. And so we're working through this book. We're almost at the end actually. We're in chapter 6. And near the end of chapter 6, we'll be in verses 5 to 9. And this is a section uh, really up until verse 9 here, it's covering a lot of practical material. And this week's material is very practical. This week's material applies very much to work. Something that we do for uh, a good part of our waking hours is work. Uh, And yet we sometimes don't know quite how to think about work. There are a lot of ideas and a lot of uh, feelings when you mention work. Actually, uh, 73% 73% of those who were survey, surveyed in a recent survey said that they worked strictly for the paycheck. That's why they worked, just to get a paycheck. 73%, that's a, that's a lot. That would be their prime motive. Um, there's a lot of disinterest and unhappiness in the workplace, so much so that the, the cost of that, of basically working less than you might, uh, is $550 billion a year in the United States just from people not motivated, not working hard. Um, the other side of that is another survey found that 47% of the respondents have fallen asleep on the job. I don't know if you've ever fallen asleep on the job. <laughs> um, that's why I don't have it like a couch in my office. Actually, I got one recently, but it's too short to lie down on, and so that helps me. There are some times when I might be tempted after a little sleep. Um, but 47% and and uh, most people wake themselves up, but 10% uh, are caught by their bosses. I don't know if you've ever been caught by your boss. 7% were caught by their clients. That's even more embarrassing. Um, 
and 25% have said they made major mistakes due to sleep deprivation. So we don't necessarily sleep a lot and we can work a lot sometimes. The average work week is, is about 50 hours now. Uh, it used to be more like 40, but about half the people work 50 hours or even more. Salaried workers tend to, to work at least 50 hours. That's changed. And the motivations to work are, when they're surveyed are, are interesting to look at. The 10 most important factors that people have for uh, finding a particular job, if you ask people that are younger, they would say uh, number one is job security, then pay, healthcare benefits, vacation time, um, being a great place to work, the commute, and then other things. If you ask older people, it shifts a little bit. Healthcare benefits are still right near the top, but uh, they're first, and then base pay, job security, vacation time, and so forth. Uh, and then they actually list relationship with the supervisor. So there's all these motivations for work that we have, whether it's a paycheck or other things. What do you think about when you think about work? What are your motives? What is the word work elicit in you? How do you feel when you hear the topic of work? What motivates you? What are your top ten reasons to work? Do you overwork? Do you underwork? What does God have to say about work? Well, He actually has a lot to say, and, and our text today speaks really very clearly into our work situations. So we're going to dig into this. We're going to dig into this passage, verses 5-9, through nine, and we're going to learn, by God's grace, what He has to say. And my prayer is that in, as we do this, it, it won't just be like, wow, that's cool. I never really knew what the Bible talked about work, but even more than that, that you will experience change in your life. You'll experience God speaking to you about work and even about your work situation. And you'd go out from here maybe different, changed by His Word. That's really what we come with every Sunday. That's our expectation. God's a living God. His Word is living. He loves to speak to us and to change us. So let's pray and ask that He does that this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord God, for your living word. We thank you, God, that you care about us. You care about our work situations. And I pray, God, would you help me to proclaim your word, to teach it, to illustrate it in such a way that, that we, uh, that everyone here would hear what your word says clearly and they would hear your voice. And Lord, as a result of being here today, they would encounter you and, and what you have to say about this and, and they'd have fresh faith for Monday morning or later today or whatever they might be doing to work, Lord. That there would be a different perspective and, and even greater fruit and joy in the workplace and greater glory to Your name. Lord, I believe this is what You want to do today. So I thank You and we ask You these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please read with me uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5-9. to nine. You can follow it along up top if you don't have a Bible with you. But we'll read this section of Scripture and learn about what God teaches us about work. It says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, 
knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Ephesians 6, 5-9. Now this passage, as you probably picked up, has its original application to bondservants and masters back in the ancient world. Yet we can learn a lot from it and make application to really any work scenario we might be in. And there's much in this short paragraph to gain in terms of how we think about work. The bottom line, I'll tell you, is the title of the message, it's the main point here, is that we work for Christ. We as Christians, as believers in Christ, those who have been rescued by Him, redeemed by Him, those who have Him living, God, uh, the Spirit living in us, those who walk together as His people, we work for Christ. Whether an employee or a boss, we all work for the Lord and are called to seek to please Him in our work. We're called to work for a heavenly reward for our work. We work for Christ. And if you remember anything from this message, I hope it's simply that. We work for Christ. In bringing that point home, I trust, I want to touch on a few things. First, I want to give a little background that will help us kind of put this passage in context and understand how we can apply it to our modern situation. And I want to talk about what it means and hopefully convince you that the passage clearly says we work for Christ. And I want to talk about the idea that we work to please Him in that and we work for a heavenly reward. So those three or four points are what I'm going to cover. So let's begin. First, a little background that will help us, I think, in understanding what's going on here. It uses the word bondservant here. Bondservants obey your earthly masters. That word masters actually is lords, the same word that's used for the Lord Christ later on. Your earthly lords. Um, that word bondservants can be translated slaves as well. Um, it, it's really the word for slaves, uh, doulos and and it's translated in the ESV and other translations as bondservants. And that's a little bit of a less intense word than slave because for us, when we think slave, we think American slavery, right? We think of racist, race-based slavery uh, that was abusive and so forth. And so we can't really understand what this is talking about. And there are some similarities, but there's also some stark differences. The slavery of the Bible was not as brutal and it was not racist. So the translators here and elsewhere use the word bondservant just to kind of keep us from tripping up over the word and not quite understanding uh, the context. But they were, this is addressing slaves. These are uh, people who are owned by others. They're not, uh, they're, they don't have rights. They're not owned by themselves. They, they don't have freedom. They're owned by others. And in the ancient Roman world, uh, it was reality that slaves were everywhere. It's estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So it was, slaves were everywhere. They were just a common part of society. Um, they occupied many uh, of the common jobs, maybe even most of the common jobs that were out there. Everything from digging in salt mines to uh, being a college professor or a doctor or even a CEO of a company could be a slave, could be owned by someone. So the, the owner of the company would have a slave who was very gifted run the company. And that was common uh, back then. They, they could do all these sorts of things. Many wealthy families owned slaves to tutor their children, to teach their children. Actually, most of the teachers for wealthy families were educated slaves. And they were m of multiple ethnicities. They were acquired by uh, military conquest for the most part. So as a Roman armies conquered peoples, they would enslave entire populations. And so all the people in that city that they conquered would be made slaves and sold to serve others. 
Um, that was the most common way. Sometimes it was through payment for debts, and uh, those who were born of slaves were also slaves. They were treated as property. They had no rights at all. Um, but they were generally treated better than historic American slavery. Um, uh, but there was no guarantee of rights. They were considered part of the household, actually, uh, for the most part. And that's why, actually, Paul addresses them here. If you remember our section, right, it started out, this section is the household section. He talks to husbands and wives, right? Then he talks to children, and then parents, and then he talks to slaves and masters. So their mindset was a little different than what we would think of slavery historically. They were part of the household. And, and so Paul's addressing the household, he's addressing this part of the household, the slaves and, and the masters, the foremen and so forth, in, in the households. Now, this whole topic kind of brings up the question is, well, why didn't Paul say more about slavery? Why didn't he come out and actually just clearly say, this is wrong and needs to change immediately? Why didn't he do that? Um, and there's, there's questions about that. I think it's hard to answer that in some ways because we're, we're trying to answer something from silence because we don't know all that Paul said. We know what he said here. We don't know all that he said. Um, and we could probably ask the same question about a lot of uh, immoral society, societal ills that were going on, a lot of immoral practices in Romo Roman society. So Paul doesn't talk about infanticide, which is a big problem in the Roman Empire. He doesn't address it directly. We might ask, why not? Uh, he doesn't address the tyranny of the Caesars. He doesn't say, you know, overthrow Caesar because they're crazy and tyrants. He doesn't address... Uh, Roman warfare, which was largely not just war. It was unjust war. It was conquering people. He doesn't address uh, crucifixion as a death penalty. There's all sorts of things he doesn't address. And so we can't hear what he's not saying, right? That's important to understand. He's not saying slavery is okay. That's kind of what some of the slaveholders back before the Civil War did. They said his silence is approval. No, it isn't. You can't say anything from silence. And we can look through Scripture, what he says here, and just in this passage, it's a radically different approach to slavery than what they would have known. We're going to dig into it, but if you look in the passage, you'll, you'll see that he tells the masters to treat your slaves in the same way. So just as your slaves are to work for the Lord, you're to be a, a, a master for the Lord. You're to treat them as brothers and sisters, as equals. You're to uphold their rights. You're to care for them. That was radical. So he's basically saying you need to treat them not as property, but as people. Elsewhere in Scripture, he tells uh, those who are slaves, if they can, to gain their freedom. So he doesn't say, just stay where you are and be a good slave, merely. He says, gain your freedom. He condemns slave trading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And if you back up into the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of laws that talked about the just treatment of slaves. And there, there was slavery allowed in the Old Testament, but there were laws for how it had to be taken care of. And you had to protect slaves and provide for them in certain ways. And for slaves that were fellow Israelites who maybe had sold themselves into slavery to pay off family debt, after six years you had to free them. So they were more like indentured servants. So all that to say... Um, the Bible does speak about this. And all that to say that the, the, those who would have used the Scriptures in the past to somehow justify slavery had really no basis to do that in Scripture. They had to argue from silence. And also to know that, that most of the abolitionists were motivated by their Christian faith to end slavery. It was the book 
and the truths of the book and the fact that we're all made equal in the eyes of God and we are brothers and sisters and we must treat each other that way and realizing slavery does not lead to that. It leads the other way that, that led Christian abolitionists to fight for the end of slavery. And thank God, Western culture saw the light in that. Um, part of it is just the, prog- the, the progress of culture as Christianity has had an influence in culture. It's changed these things. Where there isn't that light of Christianity, there's not necessarily the, the motive to abolish slavery. Lord willing, we'll continue to have that light in our culture and treat people as they ought to be treated. So, I hope that helps you just kind of sort through this idea of slaves and masters in this passage and will help you, I think, hopefully sort through that enough to be able to move on to a more direct application for us because we, thank God, do not have slaves and masters around. But we do have work. And this passage applies to us in the work environment. It, It says so much to us. We can understand so many key truths here and they really, these, these truths apply to anybody who's responsible to work for another or oversee the work of another, whether you're an employee or a boss. This passage speaks to us. And first, in this, it teaches us that we work for Christ. We work for Christ. You'll see in this passage over and over again, this idea that we work for Christ. Verse 5, it, it says, as you would Christ. Actually, if you can keep the verse up there, that would be good. I don't know if we can fit it all in one slide, Dan, but... And if you have your Bible, keep it open. I want you to see these things. Verse 5, it talks about to work as you would Christ. To, to work for your earthly masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, it says as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7 calls us to work as to the Lord and not to man. Verse 8 says knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Then masters, you're to be masters or bosses knowing that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven. So it's unmistakable in this passage that we, as Christians, are to work for the Lord primarily. Over and over again, we see Christ and the Lord mentioned here. We are to work for the Lord. We are to work for Him. Not primarily to please a boss, an earthly boss. Not primarily for self-promotion. Not primarily to earn a paycheck. Not primarily for self-fulfillment. All these are motives that are there in our culture. And and in the right place, they, they might be acceptable. But we are to work primarily for the Lord. We work for Christ. We are not to work for men as the prime motive. You see in verse 6 where it talks about this, this idea, it says, not by, the, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. So not kind of thinking when the boss is around, that's when I work hard. When I know that I'm going to get credit from the boss, that's when I'll work hard. Otherwise, I'll slack off. The Scripture is telling us not to do that. And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, it should hit us hard to realize we're, we're called not to work to please our earthly boss. As good as our earthly boss might be. We're not to work to please our earthly boss. We're to have a higher motive Reader's Digest contributor Howard Stein told the following story. He said, A retired friend became interested in the construction of an addition to a shopping mall. Observing the activity regularly, he was especially impressed by the conscientious operator of a large piece of equipment. I guess it's a crane or a bulldozer or something. 
The day finally came when my friend had a chance to tell this man how much he enjoyed watching his scrupulous work. Looking astonished, the operator replied, You're not the supervisor? <laughs> Get it? He was working hard because he thought the guy was a supervisor. <laughs> this passage tells us not to work by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. We are called to work our heart out for God. He is the ultimate supervisor that we work for. We are to work with His eyes on us. We are to work from our souls. The word there for, for heart actually is souls. You are to work from the depths of who you are with your deepest motivations, your deepest interests, your deepest passions in your job for the Lord. That's what this is calling us to. That's what God is calling us to. To work from our soul, from the depths of our soul and what we do. That's, that's the standard here. That's what we're called to here in this passage. Not for pleasing people, but for pleasing God. Now, now, if you're honest, and I'll just be honest, I have to say that many of my hardest efforts in life have been because someone was watching me. Someone was watching what I did. And it could have been a supervisor, a boss. It could have been a peer. But it helps me. I, I think about actually in athletics. Uh, I don't know if, if you've competed in athletics and, and ever found just the help of having a, someone else competing against you or with you or a coach being there. It motivates you a lot more. When you're on your own trying to do a workout versus with a workout buddy or a coach or something, you've your workouts, at least for me, may not be as good. I can remember actually when I was in high school playing football and they would time us in the 40-yard dash, they would put someone ahead of us 10 yards and we both would start at the same time. And you would try to catch the person. And that, that would motivate you to run faster in your 40-yard dash. It, that, it, that's called a rabbit. Um, and it's a method that's used in, in racing and so forth. You put a rabbit ahead, someone that you're trying to catch. Hopefully they're faster than you. And you run after, you compete. And, and I don't think this passage is saying that it's wrong to work for these things. But it's saying that there has to be a higher motivation. Think of it this way. The one at the finish line, the one who is the rabbit ahead of us, the one cheering us on, the one overseeing us, must be Christ not a mere person. That's what this passage is teaching us. The one who spurs us on. The one who inspires us. The one we're working for to please must be Christ. Why would we find that motivational? Why would we find that something that motivates us to work hard, to, to pour our hearts out, to give, us, to give our very best, to, to work from the depths of our soul? Why would we find Christ being the one we work for, so motivating. Well, I think it comes from understanding who He is. I think when we get who He is, it changes us. I think when we understand what He's done for us, it alters our motivations for work. When we really understand that He has first worked for us, then we will find motivation to work for Him. He has worked for us. 
when we had really made a mess of things. A complete mess. He came and worked for us. He came to serve us. He came to pour out His heart and soul for us. He gave Himself for us when we had made a real mess of things. I don't know if you've ever made a mess of things in the workplace or somewhere else. Uh, I don't want to fill the time with stories about me making messes. I have plenty of messes I've made, but, but I just thought of one, one example. Um, it's just I find myself always making messes of my computer. Um, I don't know if this is how it is for you, but I only go so long before my computer stops working how it ought to be, ought to work. And sometimes I, I, I'm the cause of it. Um, I, I know enough to be dangerous when it comes to the computer, so sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll use software to improve the efficiency and it does something to the registry or something like that and things get really messed up. Do the, the computer geeks out there probably know what I'm talking about, at least somewhat. And I'll make a mess of things. And sometimes the mess isn't from me. Um, I just, I don't know what it is, but computers are like the area where are most prone to be messy in the workplace. But then what happens, right, is you call somebody who knows what they're doing. And, uh, and some people are really good. We have a couple of them in our church uh, where they come in and they just sit down and or they do it remotely, you know, and all of a sudden your computer's working and working really well. They come in and they, they, make, they clean up the mess for you. Um, thank God for that. Well, Jesus came into a situation that was way more, more messed up than any computer. The messed up situation that we all created was in our sin. It was in us, really, mankind. God Actually, God created things not messy. God created us, created mankind with everything we needed. He created us and put us in the perfect environment. He, he called us to believe Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy Him, and gave just one simple command, don't eat of this tree. And mankind, Adam and Eve, chose to eat of that tree. They chose to disobey. And they rebelled against God. And mankind ever since has been doing the same. Making a mess of things. When God has put around us really everything we need, He's gracious, He's for us, He's blessed us. He gives so many good gifts to us. And yet we choose to ignore Him and to walk the other way and to live life on our own terms and make a mess. We, we do, don't we? We make a mess of things. And we don't like to admit it either. We... we we deny it or we blame others when, when we make messes. We disobey God. We don't love God. We don't believe God. We don't love others. And, and if we're honest with who we are, we'll look at ourselves honestly, we'll, we'll quickly recognize we've made a mess of things. We've broken our relationship with God. We're in a state of rebellion. We're in spiritual darkness. And God in His justice has to deal with that, with that rebellion. And justice requires that he addresses it, not ignores it, not sweeps it under the rug. He wouldn't be just. And justice for the, the intentional mess we've made is, is for God to separate us from himself. That's what death is. Spiritual death is being separated from God, cut off from a relationship with God, left in our mess. And if we live there, we'll just keep on making the mess worse and worse. Now some of us, are, the mess we make, everyone can see it. Some of us, it's very obvious, and in some ways, we're in a better place if our mess is real obvious, because at least we recognize it. But messes can look neat and tidy in some ways and still be messes. We can have a good appearance. We can hide the, the, the need that's in our hearts. We can hide the, the deep doubt and despair that's there. We can pretend that we're okay by, by doing religious things. 
and trying to make ourselves look good, but if we really look at the depths of our hearts, we'll see there's, there's no true goodness in it. We've made a mess and we need Him. And if we continue to live on our own terms, ignoring that mess and thinking we can cover it up, or continue to make it even worse, we'll live in that darkness, that separation, that spiritual death forever. That's what hell is. It's eternity and spiritual death cut off from God. There's nothing worse. So we've made a mess of things. All of us. There's not a single person here who's not made a mess. And who's not lived in the mess. Yet Christ has come. Christ has come. God came in the flesh to rescue us from our mess. To to come in. And where we messed up, He never failed. He obeyed God. He loved others. He loved His Father and others to the point of going to the cross, the point of death, even death on the cross. And even death where He took on Himself the sins, the messes of you and me and any who would call on Him. Bearing that penalty for that mess. Shedding His blood and dying for our mess. Paying the penalty fully and thank God. As God in the flesh, He paid it fully and He said on the cross, it is finished. His blood paid for your mess. All of your sins were atoned for by His blood. And then He was buried and on the third day He rose again victorious over sin and death. Victorious over your mess for you so you could put your faith in Him and have all your sins forgiven. Have your mess taken care of and and be accepted by Him and be reunited with Him. Through faith in Him, you are joined to His family. He dwells in you. He'll be with you always. He'll change your life. He'll give you the ability to to begin to become more and more like Him. to, To put off the old habits and walk in the new. He's come in and He's dealt with our mess. He worked for us so that we can work for Him. And when we get that, when we get all that He's done, when we realize that this is true and we put our faith in Him, when we see these things, it changes our lives and it changes our motivations for work. And all of a sudden, He's in our life. He's now the one who's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our ultimate boss. He's our friend. He's our hope, our joy, our life. He's with us. He'll never abandon us. And so, knowing this, knowing who He is and what He's done for us, transforms us and transforms our work. That's why this passage is saying we work for Christ. Because the whole context in Ephesians is the good news of what Christ has done for us. And so for the believer, for all of us, our work ethic is totally transformed by Christ totally transformed. All those other motivations, they might be present and and most of them are fine to be present in our lives, but they're no longer to be primary. The primary motive for the Christian to work is we work for Christ. We work for Christ. We work to please Him. So how about you? Is this how you see work? Is this how you understand what you do each day throughout the week? Can you connect doing the different tasks of your week to working for Christ? That's what this passage is calling you to. This is what it's calling us to. Everything we do in work, to work 
for Christ. We're to work to please Him. My second, my second point. Our work ethic is driven by a desire to please Him. The One who's loved us and laid His life down for us, we are to seek to please Him. And, and this is described throughout this passage. The godly bondservant is to work for his earthly master with fear and trembling. Not because he's afraid of the master, because he has a sincere heart for the ultimate master, for Christ Himself. He's glad to be owned, glad to be loved by Jesus. And thus, we take, he takes work, he or she takes work very seriously. And it says here that we are to do the will of God from the heart. This is how it is described here. Do you see that in the passage? Verse 7, rendering service uh, with the good will. Oh, that's not the one I want, actually. There it is, verse 6. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's a really interesting phrase. Doing the will of God from the heart. Do you see it? Do you see it there in the passage? Isn't it interesting that it, that it says doing the will of God from the heart in this call to work? What sort of things would, have the, would the bond servants have been doing back then as they worked? Cooking dinner? Sweeping the floor? Teaching mathematics, business, running a business, overseeing the farm, selling things, overseeing investments. Those are the sort of things they would have been doing, right, in their jobs. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Those are the sort of things we do in work. But wait a second. These things are the will of God? This is doing the will of God? I thought doing the will of God was like, you know, coming to church on Sundays and praying and reading the Bible and sharing the good news with others, right? That's the will of God. This other stuff, that's just secular stuff, right? Just like that's, that's like secular, it's necessary evil, right? We've got to have a paycheck somehow, right? We've got to eat. So I've got to do these things. That's the will of God? All those things? That's not the will of God, is it? Yes, it is. The passage says it is, right? It's very clear. All this sort of work, all this stuff that we might think is mundane and we might mistakenly think is secular, that's like one of the worst ideas ever to hit the church, that there's somehow a secular, sacred divide. Everything in the Lord is sacred. Everything is made by Him. Every good gift comes from Him. He's a God who's made the whole universe. Every aspect. The spiritual things, the physical things, they're all made by God. They're all for His glory, for our good, as originally made. They're all of Him. There's no sacred... Uh, Secular divide. There's no spiritual, physical divide in that sense. It's all from God. It's all part of what it is to live in His creation. And so every occupation He calls us to is to be a holy occupation. Everything we do in our work is to be in Him and for Him. It's all to be worship. It's all to be about pleasing Him. It's all deeply valuable to God. Whether, whatever it might be, it's all the will of God. Everything, every legitimate occupation he calls us to is doing the will of God. Whether it's changing a diaper, emptying the trash, or discovering supernovas, all work for him is worship. And you can please him with how you work, how you sweep the floor, how you make cakes, how you feed your children, how you design websites, how you cut wood, how you build homes, how you solder or plumb, how you teach. All these occupations are invitations from God in Christ to worship. And He loves our work when it's done this way. 
It's the will of God. It's called the will of God. And later, I'm going to talk about this, but there's a reward for it. Your mundane tasks, which you might feel are mundane, are the will of God. That's amazing. And there's a reward for it. And He receives it. He delights in it. When we work for Him, when we work for Christ in these things, He receives it. He's pleased. He receives it as worship. In His great love and in the perfection of Christ, the fact that we are in Christ, He covers all of our sins and everything, all of our worship, as imperfect as it might be, is welcome. Welcomed by Him and received by Him. He loves our work. He's not sitting there thinking when you, if your job's sweeping the floor, you missed a spot. Oh, you missed another spot. Think about it a little bit, right? I'm not too good at picking up spots, but maybe I can pick a spot here or there when I'm watching someone sweep. God sees everything. He sees every little microscopic particle, little bit of bacteria on that floor. He sees all the spots. And if He wanted to do that, we'd be sweeping forever, right? But He receives it when it's done for Him as worship. He's pleased. Even if we miss a spot or two. Or a couple million. He receives it when it's done for him as worship. He's like the parent who's hand, handed the latest craft from their young child. One of those photo collage things or one of those uh, macaroni shell things glued to plate sprayed with gold. Did you guys ever make any of those things? Yeah. Actually, I still, I still have... <laughs> sounds like you re- received too many, Mike. But, um, <laughs> I still have some of those things actually from the kids. And I never was like, oh man, another macaroni gold thing I mean this is like the 10th one every Father's Day I get a little macaroni thing with sprayed gold paint you know don't waste my time and toss it in the trash no I never did that and I hope none of us ever did that we're, we're not <laughs> and Mike wants to Mike wants to vindicate himself um, we're, that, that little macaroni sculpture might as well be a Michelangelo or a Rembrandt for the parent that loves that child that's how the Father is with us. That's what it says. It's the will of God, right? We're doing the will of God when we're working. And there's a reward for it. It's amazing. So He receives it like that. He takes the, the macaroni sculptures and He puts it on the fridge and says, well done. I'm pleased with you. He delights in us. In our work. Not just when we pray. Not just when we read the Bible. Not just when we go to church. Not just when we share the Gospel. All that's part of it. And all that will be imperfect as well. But when we work, when we do the tasks that are part of work, He receives it as worship. So do you see your work this way? Do you see your mundane tasks this way? When you're doing the things that seem so simple and, and boring perhaps, do you see it as worship? That's how God sees it. That's what this passage calls us to. We're to work to please Him. We work for Christ. And finally, we work to receive a reward from Him. That's amazing. It's amazing in this passage that there is an eternal, heavenly reward for our work. Isn't that just amazing? Our work, the, the sweeping of the floors, the organizing of the shelves, the hammering of the nails, the typing of the keyboard brings an eternal reward. It says here, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. In the parallel passage in Colossians, it tells us 
clearly that there's a reward from the Lord. This is, this is the idea of receiving back from the Lord, whether he's bondservant or free. And then masters are to do their work, by the way, with this in mind as well. Do the same to them and stop your threatening. So stop motivating your employees by fear of you, fear of the work situation. Just a good thing to hear if, if you're a supervisor. It can be easy to make your employees motivated by fear. And it says, stop your threatening. Treat them the same way as your brothers and sisters as equals. And realize that you're working yourself for the Lord. He sees what's going on. He's the judge to reward and also to deal with things that are not right. He's both their master and yours in heaven. He's in heaven. He rules over all. And we're working for that eternal reward for Him. It's an amazing blessing to recognize that we receive an eternal reward for our work. Rewards in heaven are not given just for leading people to Christ or being a martyr or giving away all your money. All those things might be glorious. And certainly there's a reward for that done in Christ's name. But all the tasks, it says here, verse 8, knowing that the holy things that anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. No? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whatever it is, your tasks, all the things that you're doing that are God's will, that just in your simple tasks, are seen by God with joy, seen as worship, and there's an eternal heavenly reward for it. That's so, that's so life-changing, isn't it? Those tasks that we do, there's a heavenly reward. I love this story told by the early 20th century pastor H.A. Ironsides. He tells the following story. He says, when I was a boy, I felt it was a duty, both a duty and a privilege to help my widowed mother make ends meet by finding employment in vacation time on Saturdays and other times when I didn't have to be in school. For quite a while, I worked for a Scottish shoemaker or cobbler, as he preferred to be called, an Orkney man named Dan McKay. He was a forthright Christian. And his little shop was a real testimony for Christ in the neighborhood. The walls were literally covered with Bible texts and pictures, generally taken from old-fashioned Scripture sheet almanacs, so that look where one would, he would find the Word of God staring him in the face. There were John 3.16 and John 5.24, Romans 10.9 and, and more. On the little counter in front of the bench on which the owner of the shop sat was a Bible, generally open, and a pile of Gospel tracts. No package went out of that shop without a printed message wrapped inside. And whenever opportunity offered, the customers were spoken to kindly and tactfully about the importance of being born again and the blessedness of knowing that the soul is saved through faith in Christ. Many came back to ask for more literature or to inquire more particularly as to how they might find peace with God. With the blessed results that men and women were saved frequently right in the shoe shop. It was my chief responsibility <clears throat> excuse me, to pound leather for shoe soles. A piece of cowhide would be cut to suit, then soaked in water. I had a flat piece of iron over my knees, and with a flat-headed hammer, I pounded these soles until they are hard and dry. It seemed an endless operation to me, and I wearied of it many times. What made my task worse was the fact that a block away there was another shop that I passed going to and from home, and in it sat a jolly, godless cobbler 
who gathered the boys of the neighborhood about him and regaled them with lewd tales that made him dreaded by respectable parents as a menace to the community. Yet somehow, he seemed to thrive. And that, perhaps to a greater extent than my employer, McKay. As I looked in his window, I often noticed that he never pounded souls at all, but took them from the water and nailed them on, damp as they were, with the water splashing from them as he drove each nail in. One day I ventured inside, something I've been warned never to do. Timidly I said, I, I notice you put the soles on while they're still wet. Are they just as good as if they were pounded? He gave me a wicked leer as he answered, they come back all the quicker this way, my boy. Feeling I had learned something, I related the instance to my boss and suggested that I was perhaps wasting time in drying out the leather so carefully. Mr. McKay stopped his work and opened his Bible to the passage that reads, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Harry, he said, I don't cobble shoes just for the four bits and six bits that I get from my customers. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I have ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I do not want the Lord to say to me in that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You did not do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, so he was called to fix shoes. And that only as he did this well would his testimony count for God. It was a lesson I have never been able to forget. Often when I have been tempted to carelessness and to slipshod effort, I have thought of dear, devoted Dan McKay and it has stirred me up to seek to do all as for him who died to redeem me. the band could come up as we prepare to close. Guys, we have been so blessed by God to be rescued from our mess, to belong to Christ, and to have our work transformed from menial tasks perhaps to meaningful tasks because the, all these tasks are to be worshipped. To have a God who cares for us, who watches us, who inspires us, who helps us. We have a relatively short life. We have the opportunity in our life to, to work for Him. To use our talents in whatever occupation we have to worship Him with our work. To work for Christ. This passage calls us to this. The wonderful Gospel gives us every reason. Christ Himself died and risen for us, with us always. So before we close in song, I just want to give an opportunity for you just to prayerfully respond to God's Word. Somehow. I imagine that there's application for everyone here from this passage. Maybe for you, this is the first time you've heard this idea that Jesus came to clean up our mess. And what you need to do today is just simply say, Jesus, forgive me for my mess. I want to follow you. Thank you for dying for me. Just to simply pray and respond. Put your faith in Him. Find a new life in Him and find new motivation for work. 
Maybe you just need to recognize, Lord, I, I never thought about work that way. Help me to, to get this and live in it. Just a simple prayer. Maybe you just need to learn to practice His presence at work. Maybe you've forgotten this truth and you just need to maybe pray while you're doing things. Lord, help me. Help me to remember. Help me remember that you're with me. Help me that, to remember that you're pleased with my work as I do it for you. Maybe you need to stop working merely for the money or for personal fulfillment merely or primarily or human pressure, but now primarily for Christ. Tell Him you're sorry for making those other motivations first. And ask Him to fill you and lead Him in His way. Whatever might apply to you, let's just be before the Lord to pray and then we'll close in prayer and song.